How does St. Augustine, an early church father and theologian, still speak to us today in the 21st century? In this episode, James Smith, a professor of philosophy at Calvin University, speaks with Sherry Osteen about his new book, On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. They discuss how Augustine's teachings provide fresh perspectives for our contemporary context. Smith speaks about how the myth of self-sufficiency could be the root of our anxiety, how a refugee is an appropriate metaphor for the Christian journey, and how we can find liberation in the midst of restlessness. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Jamie, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's really a treat. Thanks, Sherry. So it was great to spend some time with what feels like you and uh, St. Augustine. So I'd be curious if you'd walk us into kind of why it felt significant to write this book. Who Who is Augustine and why does he matter? Yeah, it's uh, it's a great question because on the one hand, it's like, really, Augustine <laughs> today? It's the 21st century. Hello. Uh, maybe there's more relevant. On, on the other hand, um, my... my um, intuition and my conviction is that actually this this ancient character gives us a fresh take on our own contemporary context so it's it's really stems from the fact that i think augustine has this kind of perennial insight into human nature into the psychology of the human heart Mm -hmm. and and in that sense um he feels like a contemporary. So I'm, we should remind folks just as a refresher. So when we're talking about Augustine, we're talking somebody who lived in the late 300s and early 400s. Mm-hmm. So late Roman Empire. But one, a feature of Augustine that's really interesting is that he's from North Africa. So he's kind of from the provinces. He grows up in a bicultural and probably biracial home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's all kinds of sort of fresh aspects of who Augustine is that we also maybe don't get from the typical theological textbook. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and then the, la- the the other piece of it is I- I'm trained as a philosopher. And one of the things that fascinated me was the extent to which 20th century thinkers who have, you know, influenced us like the writer Albert Camus or Jacques Derrida, mm-hmm. you know, the terrible postmodernist or, or, um, Martin Heidegger, these these were all people who were still grappling with Augustine firsthand. So there's ways in which we are heirs to this Augustinian uh, inheritance that we might not have realized. Yeah, there's a there's a part where you where you talk about how even for those of us who would never define our worldview as Augustinian um, or have any of that language, we've been swimming in the water anyway. Can you give like a couple examples of what it means to have kind of absorbed some of his influence along the way? Let's try this as an example. So one of the things that maybe people don't immediately think of when they think of Augustine is he has this really fascinating diagnosis of the restlessness of the human Mm -hmm. heart. Do you know what I mean? And he's, and he's very vulnerable and open about his own sort of struggles of like, not knowing who he was or what he was about. And especially, you know, in his twenties, he's like trying to figure these things out. And he talks about that specifically 
uh, as a kind of restlessness, because as we all, we, everybody who's heard of Augustine has heard that famous opening line from the confessions. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest. Yeah. In What's interesting is, um, so fast forward 1600 years mm-hmm. and, um, our language of angst, of anxiety, is a direct um, influence from St. Augustine. The, the, the way, you know, we talk about angsty teens now mm-hmm. or whatever it might be, but it's interesting that what put that language on the map for us of angst, anxiety, this unsettledness, this dis-ease, um, really trickles down from a German philosopher who was kind of the father of existentialism named Martin Heidegger. Mm-hmm. And he gave this really sort of influential analysis of angst that then started influencing in France and film and television mm-hmm. and literature and things like that. It turns out angst is Heidegger's German translation from when he was reading Augustine's Confessions in like 1919. And now it's all over pop culture and And you would never know the genealogy of that. So then what becomes interesting is, I mean, man, is anything more relevant than anxiety? Uh, And, and so now what it, what happens is my hope is that people come back to an ancient uh, theologian and Bishop like Augustine with these new eyes and say, okay, this was a person who was trying to diagnose anxiety like Mm -hmm. cultural and personal and existential anxiety and that's when i think a text like the confessions sort of opens up afresh to us and it's not it's no longer just a kind of spiritual memoir we don't read it as this moralizing preachy kind of thing it now it's it's this um interior investigation of his own dis-ease and unsettledness and anxiety. And that that's why I think he also maybe has something to offer us uh, as we continue to struggle with that today. Well, and it's hard not to think about anxiety, dis-ease, without also thinking of our contemporary context where we've just, we're living in a global pandemic and yeah. our country is in the midst of um, more and more public exposure to incidents of racial injustice um, on top of the ongoing experience, of course. Um, but I wonder, the book came out in 19 and then yeah. immediately after we, you know, have been collectively experiencing heightened anxiety and disease. And I wonder if you've had a chance to reflect on that. Yeah, that's, um, and, and I can totally identify, I, I have to say the, the, um, Somebody in the New York Times recently described our situation as this languishing mm-hmm. that we find ourselves. And it just, I felt so seen. Yeah, a friend pointed that same article out to me and I said, thank you. Yes, it was, it like almost gave us permission to sort of name where we are. And I think, I do think someone like Augustine kind of gives you categories and lenses to think about that. Now, how, so how would that go? Well, on the one hand, Augustine thinks a lot of our anxiety and unsettledness and not being at peace comes from looking for love in all the wrong places, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? In other words, what he would say is it actually comes from us sort of over expecting 
from the even good things that God has surrounded us with. And so what happens is, is we kind of like glom onto things or we fixate on things and we think this is the one thing that's finally going to give me, you know, meaning and significance mm-hmm. and happiness. And, and it, and it, when we, when we sort of cling to it in that way, uh, it's, it melts between our fingers. Mm-hmm. That, that I think is still a very, very powerful analysis of sort of uh, our own, um, penchant to uh, um, look for love in all the wrong places. Now, if you pivot and, th- and say, okay, well, how would Augustine help us to understand where this anxiety comes from in the amorphousness of isolation in the pandemic? Well, this is where I think he ha- also has a really interesting account of how and why we are these inherently social creatures, mm-hmm. that we are we are made for friendship. In some ways, friendship is is one of his most um, perennial metaphors for what the good life looks like. And to to wither those possibilities of connection is to sort of encase ourselves. And uh, um, if if starts to feel like we are imprisoned within our own mind, we start to feel like we are. Are, are losing the chance for these connections and webs of meaning and, and love and significance and service, I would mm-hmm. say too. Augustine would say the myth of self-sufficiency might be the root of so much of our anxiety. And so then I think what happens is, is when we are left on our own, we start to experience this um, dis-ease and we realize, gosh, I need others. I'm, I need, and I also need to be needed by others. And that's, I think, what so many of us miss during this past year. Yeah. And we have a culture that's told us that we're independent and we're rugged individuals, but of course, none of us uh, actually is. No, exactly. I, the other, the other thing I would say too, I mean, if you think of then the sort of injustices that we have witnessed and that too many people have experienced over this past year, Augustine can also, um, I mean, he has a lot of powerful resources in the city of God to help us make sense of um, why a disordered people um, sort of steamrolls the neighbor, mm-hmm. right? So for for Augustine, I mean, uh, um, there, there's just no possibility of the Christian life for Augustine that is not a social vision. Mm-hmm. And in that sense... Um, whenever we experience this disruption of the common wheel because neighbors are being ground under by oppression and exploitation and, and marginalization, Augustine says, in a sense, the entire, um, the fabric of the common wheel itself is rent and, and we lose a sense of hopefulness. We lose a sense of, of um commonality and we lose a sense of neighborliness mm-hmm. and there's there's a lot of ways in which augustine's diagnosis of what happens in and to rome including by the way rome's own tendency to idolize itself um actually breeds injustice and uh so i I'm, i would love to make the case that augustine's city of god is very very relevant reading for us today in fact i couldn't help but geek out when President Biden's inaugural address quoted from mm. uh, the city of God, which is what, and his, his point was exactly right. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. That's a great transition point. You, you made a choice to, to think about 
Augustine as a refugee and as the Christian life as a refugee experience, where often that would be translated as pilgrim. Can you talk a little bit about that choice and what that means, uh, what the implications of that choice are? Yeah, and I, I have to give a shout out here. The footnotes are in the book, but I have to give a shout out to a scholar named Sean Hannon, who I heard him give this amazing presentation at the American Academy of Religion, probably four years ago, where he suggested that the language that we we typically translate into English from Augustine's works, that we translate it as pilgrim. He says that actually there are connotations and resonances in it in which it would make more sense to translate it as refugee. Well, what difference does that make? Pilgrimage is a kind of sojourn where you actually leave home, go make your pilgrimage, but then you kind of circle back. Mm -hmm. And and for the for the pilgrim, there's a certain voluntariness almost you could say about that and there's a there's a there's a kind of um Maybe not security isn't the right word, but there's at least a sort of intentionality. Or temporary it, nature where, of a pilgrimage. Yeah, and it's te- and it's temporary. Exactly, exactly. And and um, it's it's this kind of circular path. Hannon points out. He says, "Well, actually, some of the connotation of the the phrases that Augustine uses are not of somebody who's." going on a trip for spiritual purposes. It's somebody who is fleeing danger, who is trying to escape brokenness, who is running away from injustice and trying to, importantly, reach a home they've never been to before. And I think that is a, that is a very, very a powerful way to reimagine what the sojourn of the Christian life is in time, which is in a sense, we are aspiring for a home we've never been to. And, and yet it, to arrive there would be the place where uh, um, God has built many mansions and says, welcome home. The, the other thing that I found really powerful about that metaphor is and Hannon highlights this too. The refugee's journey is fraught yeah. and vulnerable. Yeah, I'm thinking of Syria. And I'm thinking of unaccompanied minors at the southern border. Absolutely. The, the, the tenuousness of the whole endeavor. And it is almost always, even in those contemporary examples, it is so often communal. It's the caravan. It's the boat laden. It's a it's a whole people that are hoping to get somewhere. It is tent cities on the way, and um, it was it really kind of opened my eyes to see Augustine afresh. And I felt like it was also probably learning to read Augustine the way, say, the Black Church has always <laughs> read him. In other words, from my white comfort and privilege and status. I'm like, oh yeah, pilgrimage. I would love to go to the to the El Camino, yeah. and that'd be a great to have a trip to Spain. Whereas what we're talking about here is immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're talking about is asylum, and um, I, I think it's spiritually powerful. And then when you see the way that Augustine preaches, one of the things I really try to do in the in the book is try to say, yes, we know the Augustine of the books of the treatises, confessions, De Trinitate, and so on. But I don't think you can ever really 
know or understand Augustine until you listen to read his sermons and read his letters. And in the sermons, you will see him preaching, especially from the Psalms, in a way where he's kind of like with his parishioners in that boat mm -hmm. and in the storm-tossed sea. And he feels the fraught nature of this Christian life. And I think it, it speaks to a lot of the challenges of um, an authentic Christian life, one that one that's genuinely um, sort of in the world and facing the world. All right. So you brought this up. So I have to push a little further into this direction. Is there is there some hesitation about universalizing, in a sense, the refugee experience as the universal Christian experience? In in some way, does that does that question make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, and I I think you're right that. I do think that there is something at the heart of the Christian life as such that will always experience a spiritually fraught situation if we're really being honest and open about things. Do you know what I mean? Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that that should translate into imagining that I experience uh, the storm toss sea the way everyone does, or um, that there that there aren't, for example, Christian communities for whom this isn't just a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, this is reality. And then actually to see how much the vision of the hoped for coming city of God animates and sustains them in that situation. I, I still, it's so unbelievably humbling, for example, to see the way hope works in black churches, where, where, which it is almost unthinkable uh, given what they've endured at the hands of other Christians. Yeah, from the uh, origin of the black church in the United States. Yes, exactly, exactly. What's interesting is that uh, for Augustine, this also wasn't just a metaphor. Like he kind of put his money where his mouth was and as a bishop in north africa he was actually a really strong advocate for sanctuary for those who were in flight and yeah talk uh, about that more that was fascinating to hear about yeah so it's it's interesting he he really stood up for sustaining congregations and churches as spaces of sanctuary for those who are fleeing all kinds of persecution and injustice and even to the point where he, somebody says, well, you know, you never know, you might be giving uh, uh, comfort to uh, a criminal or whatever. And Augustine's, Augustine says, I would rather risk that uh, and make sure that I'm giving shelter to those who are fleeing slavery, for example, or fleeing political persecution at the hands of the empire. This church should be a sanctuary. And if that even means... We don't always sort of sort out who, quote unquote, deserves it. He says, that's not my job. I'm not sorting wheat and tares here. So and 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 we have to remember, too, in Augustine's time, a bishop did have quite a bit of cultural sway and influence and, and they're connected with people in power. And how does Augustine use that power? He advocates against the death penalty constantly. He is constantly appealing for clemency, for mercy in judgment. Um, so you see him standing up for those who are being ground under by this experience uh, in ways that I think a lot of people might not have realized. When you think of Augustine as being uh, this kind of journeyer or refugee, at one point you just also describe him as an ethnographer, perhaps 
that's just like a nerdy <laughs> yeah. side. But I found it cur- I, I found it just an interesting claim. So what I mean by ethnography, and by the way, I do think that this is really relevant for those who are engaged in pastoral ministry. So let's say for our purposes, by ethnography, what we mean is an ability to read the practices of a people in order to understand sort of who they are and what's at stake. Do you know what I mean? We also call it a little bit of cultural exegesis, but much more yeah. locally contextual. Yes, exactly. Cultural uh, cultural exegesis, I love that. I think it's great. And, and the difference is we're not just listening to what people say. We are trying to look at what people do. We're trying to understand the rhythms and rituals and routines that shape a people's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm using people, a community, a, a, a sector, whatever, whatever it might be. And so in that sense, it's not just, it's a kind of cultural exegesis where you're not just attuned to the messages. You're looking at well, what I call elsewhere, the cultural liturgies mm-hmm. of a society. What are, what are the things we do that do something to us? And I, I think, pastoral care and I think really, really good preaching um, has to be informed by that kind of ethnographic attunement where you sort of read the world that your parishioners are living in, moving in, what and what's at stake and what is it doing to us. Uh, I, I have a good friend, Mark Mulder, who's a, a colleague of mine in sociology here at Calvin, who teaches actually in D-Min programs, an ethnography course for mm. pastors. So I, I think this is a really great skill for pastors to develop. Yeah. What you see in Augustine is exactly that kind of cultural exegesis where in his preaching, and then I would also say, especially in City of God, he doesn't just say, you know, what does Rome stand for? Or what are the values of Rome? Or what's the constitution say? Or something like that. He's like, no, what are the rites, R-I-T-E-S of Rome? What are the rituals that Rome sort of asks of us? And when it asks us to participate in these rituals, what are those rituals subtly doing to us? And so he becomes... Um, I think very attuned to the formative dynamics of mm-hmm. culture and, and in some ways the malformative mm-hmm. uh, dynamics of culture, which, which is also of course, why he's very intentional about sacraments and liturgy as a kind of counter formation mm-hmm. to that. But it gives us all these tools, right. For reading our own culture about what are the practices that we engage in? What are the norms? And it kind of makes visible things that otherwise seem invisible if you have been soaking in your own context. Yes, yes exactly. Especially if, if we've been primed. Um, I, I bet this is probably less true of your listeners, but uh, I would say in, especially in other wider sectors of evangelical Protestantism, there's been a tendency to analyze culture as sort of propositionally. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like what are the ideas and standards and values and co uh, um, laws or mm-hmm. whatever. What we're talking about is, um, yeah, if you have this sort of Augustinian ethnographic posture, it's not like what message is being said. It's what, um, you know, what is capitalism yeah. <laughs> doing to me? And that's, and, and, the, and the, that's not about um, economic policies that are set. It's about what does the consumer ritual 
of looking for fulfillment in stuff do to me? Or what does what do parades of militarism and uh, weekly rituals of nationalism do to us? Uh, that's the kind of uh, sort of radar that Augustine works with. Let's talk about the concept of being on a journey, um, being on the road. And um, you say at one point that you can go on a journey without moving an inch. So, so talk about some of the different kinds of journeys that Augustine can be a companion for. Yeah, and, and the title of my book, On the Road with St. Augustine, is also a play on the Kerouac, of course, which is this sort of, basically what happens is uh, we, we have absorbed this sensibility that life is a quest, right? That everybody's on a journey. And what do we mean by that? Well, we're on the road to some destination. We're looking for something. We're chasing something. We're after something. And whatever that is, whatever we kind of picture as the destination is what we imagine happiness would be. Fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Somehow you're going to arrive. Somehow you're going to arrive. Exactly. And what Augustine would say is, uh, what happens is, so often we imagine, oh, if I can just get to here, then I'll be happy. Then I will have arrived. And and what he'll say is, well, basically, if anything you pick as your destination that will count as arrival, if any of that is just finite, mm. <laughs> your hungry heart is going to chew through it and eventually be dissatisfied. It's not going to work. And so that's the exhaustion of this kind of quest. I I have to confess, I kept thinking of uh, the Hamilton musical song, uh, They'll Never Be Satisfied. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You could also think of Bruce Springsteen at this point. Everybody's got a hungry heart. and, And there's a sense in which to put it this way, almost sounds cliche, except I still think he's right. If because that heart's hunger is infinite, the only thing that could ever satisfy it is ultimately infinite. And so whenever we're settling for these finite substitutes, we're we're deemed a disappointment and that's the exhaustion. So, okay, that didn't work. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And I, I think a lot of us can identify with that it's like oh if i could just get tenure if i could just get you know mm-hmm. this pastorate or something mm-hmm. like that now augustine's point is this is not about geography uh, or it's at least not about physical geography it's more like the geography of the heart which is you can be sort of chomping at the bit to quote unquote get away mm-hmm. um and never leave home because the point is is you're looking for this satisfaction you're looking for something else and outside of you now i should say i don't think augustine wants to demonize or criticize actually that hunger i think he thinks that's what's built in i I think he thinks you can't be human and not have the sense that your heart is kind of made for some other shore. So if you're restless, it's not as though you have some sort of human deficiency. No, exactly. It's it's almost a backhanded testimony that you are the kind of creature who is made for more. That's why I, I think, you know, pastorally, you, you might almost say apologetically, 
Augustine would meet folks in that situation and say, I see you're longing for more. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, a deep, deep affirmation of that. It's just then where could we find satisfaction? What would arrival look like? And- well, you brought up tenure. So can you talk about ambition, like the way in which this plays out with something yeah. akin to ambition? Yes, yes. And I suppose only egghead academics would think tenure is <laughs> ambitious. But, but-, but Augustine had some like... He had ambition, right? Absolutely. He, I mean, I, I say, if you really want to understand sort of who Augustine was in his time, he was basically a Manhattanite 1500 years before Manhattan mm. existed. Or he, he's, the, he's the person who wanted to be working on the hill, in the thick of things, uh, changing the world and being admired for doing it. And Augustine's very honest about this, even when he's a bishop. <laughs> that he mm. says, he's, you know, I'm still ambitious. It's not ambition that's the that's the problem. It's when I imagine that achieving whatever I'm ambitious for would be ultimate satisfaction. So if I what would happen? Let's take my silly example. If you know, getting tenure was my vision of like arrival. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with hoping to attain that goal. The problem is when I thought that's all I needed Mm. to be happy. And then what happens is, is you get to the top of that hill and and we all know this. We Mm -hmm. all know this. You get to the top of the hill and on the other side of it is this, for lack of a better, a kind of postpartum depression Mm. that sets in and everybody's like, that's it. (laughs) Really? This is not. And so now it's the next thing and it's the next thing and it's the next thing. And that's, again, this sort of exhaustion sets in. What is that exhaustion? Restlessness. So what does it look like to be ambitious, but also find rest? Yeah. And what would like a reordered ambition look like? Yeah. So I think Augustine envisions a reordered ambition where now I'm ambitious, not because I think achieving this goal will ultimately give me meaning and satisfaction and happiness, but because now, because I know I rest in God's love for me, in a sense now, I'm not doing this to prove anything. My ambition is not driven and fueled by demonstrating my worth. Instead, my ambition is propelled from knowing that God's love for me is not dependent on what I accomplish. And I I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly liberating because now, and so God doesn't say, I love you, sit back and do nothing. (laughs) I love you. I, you can't do anything that would possibly make me not love you, including failing, not even that. Would never affect anybody. So launch out into the deep, take your gifts, discover who you are, and now, you know, unfurl and unfold mm-hmm. possibilities that I have packed into this creation as only you could do so that we can celebrate it, so that it can be a gift to your neighbors, so that it brings joy to the world. Uh, um, and do it excellently and do it as well as you can and train yourself. And, uh, um, and what you will find then is now your ambition is sort of the thing that you hold with an open hand. Yeah, it sounds like a free way. Yes, exactly. I I think so much of how Augustine imagines 
what rightly ordered love for the world looks like is it's not love God instead of the world. And it's not cling to the world instead of God. It's um, receive all of these good and beautiful gifts and hold them in that open hand and be grateful for them, which also means that you could know how to lose them. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a very vulnerable place to be in. Another reason why I think Augustine is a gift to us is he's also really honest by saying in this life, that is in this temporal mortal life in which we find ourselves, even in Christ, in this life, it's a long road. There are many miles to go before we sleep. There's still not being in Christ is not an escape from restlessness. There's just a kind of different orientation and almost therapy for us in, in the midst of that. And I, I find that very liberating too. Yeah. That sense of like an open hand and being able to lose something. There's something that seems really comforting about that. Um, again, given that we're in a pandemic where there are, there are legitimately so many things to grieve. Yes. So how to kind of hold, not because they don't matter, right. But because things are temporal. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's, it's almost kind of countercultural to name that a little bit, but I think you're right. I actually think doing that enables us to grieve more fully to lament to to honestly lament yeah. uh and yet do so with hope yeah well you've mentioned exhaustion a couple times so i have to ask you to talk about what it sounds to me the way that you talk about augustine is he's been a pastor to you mm, um in yes. his sermons and his letters even in his relationship to his mother so can you talk about maybe how he's pastored you and what you think rest looks like um in a temporal life that can be exhausting. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I, so many of your listeners must, uh, I, I imagine pastoral ministry comes with its own loneliness because you're the one who always has to be the pastor. Mm. And being pastored, I bet, is astonishingly rare. And so that can be a very lonely place. And, and um, I, I would say Augustine, what I found in Augustine was somebody who, like, in a sense, he only gives to me. He doesn't ask any, you know, I, I don't have to give anything return. And there's, there, there's like no end to what I learn from him in his sermons in particular. I, there's, there's such a powerful pastoral presence in those sermons that I find he, he's almost like the pastor I wish I had. Mm. And um, rest, this will sound strange, but I would say, one of the aspects of rest that I think Augustine articulates is the rest that is found in confession. So that there's something, there's something unbelievably liberating in being able to be honest about not getting it right or mm. failing or, as we said, languishing or just, you know, there, when Augustine is talking about ambition, you know, in the present tense for himself and he says, you know, man, I don't know if I'm doing this for God or if I'm doing this for myself. And actually, I'm probably doing it for both reasons. And there's something like, oh, so we can just say that? We can be honest about that? Yes. And God says, I forgive you. Mm -hmm. um, I find that um, incredibly um, enduring. And, and I would say it's like 
it's counsel. It's, it's deep counsel that you sort of carry with you for a lifetime. Yeah. All right. Someone who loomed large in Augustine's life was his mother. So can you introduce us to Monica? Yeah, Monica, uh, she's such an interesting character. She's like helicopter mom extraordinaire. <laughs> so she, Monica is an African, probably of Berber origin. Um, she was a Christian and uh, his father was not. She was kind of um, constantly uh, concerned about the state of Augustine's soul, especially when he was living his kind of frat boy life for 15 years. And mm-hmm. um, what's interesting is, uh, is Monica is in some ways the star of the confessions because she is the sort of incarnate embodiment of God's covenant faithfulness to Augustine. And so she keeps her, her persistent presence her indefatigable love for Augustine and also her just um, confidence that God would hold him and care for him is such a steady presence. When, when I was writing the book, so we, we had an opportunity to spend three weeks uh, doing sort of field research. And originally, we unfortunately, because of terrorist activity, we couldn't get to North Africa at the time. So we spent all three weeks mm-hmm. tracing his steps from the port city of Ostia up through Rome, and then the, the ways that he would have made up through Tuscany to Milan. And of course, the real sort of culminating scenes of Augustine's life take place in Milan. And then eventually, he makes his way back to Africa through Ostia. Um, one of the things that struck me so powerfully is that in many ways, Monica is more um, recognized, more celebrated, more revered than Augustine. I mean, if you just think in popular Christian piety in Italy, if you just take, you know, tiny little chapels in uh, out of the way places, how frequently Monica is present is a sign that of this perennial reality, which is here is a mother who is praying in tears for the children who are on the run. And if if we can all identify with this, some of us have been that child. We've had those mothers and grandmothers. And so in the sense, the cult of Monica is such a beautiful um, picture of God's own sort of love for us. I, I was so moved by it. Why do you think that that resonated so deeply with you? To be honest, uh, it's because of I have watched my wife, Deanna. Uh, so we, um, I, I don't know how much autobiography you want here. Deanna and I both come from like multiple broken homes multiple times over. And so we, in a sense, have been trying to be something for our kids that we've never had. And uh, we've, we, you know, our kids are all in their 20s now and things. And we knew something of what that journey was to like stay alongside children on the run. Mm. And uh, Deanna's just utter devotion, just utter unconditional affection and devotion was such an incarnation of God uh, to me and to her kids that it was so moving. So when we, we visited a, um, the church in Rome where uh, Monica's uh, relics are. And 
I spotted Deanna in the chapel and Monica was, was new to her at that time. And mm. uh, she found this prayer card uh, that listed a, a sort of a prayer to St. Monica for children on the back of it. And I just looked to the left and I, I saw Deanna was weeping in this chapel devoted to St. Monica. And I knew that there was this just intense identification. Uh, probably, I bet it's the case that mothers surely identify with Monica unlike anybody else could. But there's a sense in which she's also just this human embodiment of indefatigable love. And it's um, I, it's so strange because as a philosopher, the way I learned to read Augustine was slanted, if you will. Do you know what I mean? You come to Augustine in a certain way. And it's, it's crazy that, you know, I, I'm almost... I was in my 40s before I realized, oh, Monica, Monica, mm. Monica's the engine here. Uh, and it was, um, so that was probably uh, my favorite chapter to write. Well, that's striking. I mean, when you think about the constellation of, of people who form others as Christians, the Monicas in that, in that cloud of witnesses, so to speak, loom large, the Deanna's loom large if everyone were to to draw who their kind of religious influencers were right yes and and you know it's what's maybe one of the reasons why i'm so humbled by monica too is she's so devoted to prayer and if i'm honest this is not I do <laughs> you know, like that's not my uh, that, that it's very hard for me but you can see that this is somebody who um, in a sense chases her son in prayer to God and it's it's I think you're right there are Monica's everywhere well that's beautiful Jamie thank you for the conversation today oh it's my pleasure thanks for your interest you've been listening to the distillery Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sushama Austin Connor. And I'm Sherry Osting. I'm Omar Peterman, and I am in charge of production. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.